Welcome back to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts we've read. I'm Cameron, and with me, as always, is Michael. Wow, watch I'm doing all sorts of karate moves right now. Wow, wow, wow. Is it, uh, are you experiencing agency right uh-huh. now? Uh-huh, that's, that's the idea. Karate equals agency. Wow, wow. I guess that's true. <laughs> uh, was the karate kid... The most agential person. <laughs> a lot of karate kid on range touch recently. Yeah. No, a lot, a lot of karate. Of, yeah. Yeah. A lot of karate. Uh, I mean, I, I have seen uh, the, the, you know, various Donnie Yen movies in which agency is proven by the use of martial <laughs> arts, not karate specifically. But generally, if you want like individual humanism coming at you, it's kind of, in a Donnie Yen movie. It's yeah. coming through martial arts. <laughs> He's giving it to you. That's why uh, fighting games are the most agential games. Yeah, <laughs> we know that. Michael, what are we? Uh, what are we reading this week? Well, not e- well. I guess it was this week, but also this month. We haven't read the book yet. We're actually going to read it uh, after we stop recording and come back and finish this. We do uh, that every episode, and we don't tell anybody. But we record yeah. the intro to every episode. We turn it off. We go and read the book, and then we come back and record the episode, and then we do it seamlessly. Mm-hmm. We want the energy of of like blue skies, all possibility, <laughs> to be there at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, uh, and that's why in in the coming weeks we are going to be reading uh, "Video Games and Agency" by Bettina Bodie, who is currently a lecturer in media at Leeds Beckett University. Uh, and this book came out very very recently, uh, like a couple months ago, recently. Mm-hmm. through uh, the Rutledge Advances in Game Studies series. And it is open access. That's a thing that uh, we want to say here at the top because it means, uh, uh, you know, there's been a couple books, I think, that have had this, that we've done that have had this uh, little feature. But if you are interested in anything that we talk about here, um, if this book sounds interesting to you uh, or cool or you want to follow up on something, uh, you can just search this book uh, and it'll pull it up and you can go read it online. You can get a PDF for free. Yeah, it's great. It's a great idea. Open access is good. Yep. Um, yeah, this is a very, very fresh. This is based on a dissertation that was published, uh, I guess, defended in, you know, kind of hard to know when people defend versus when it goes online, but deposited online in 2021. Um, and, you know, it's really interesting. It's always interesting to read a dissertation book, right? I think that this show has given us a very... I don't know, good way of of feeling that out. Mm-hmm. You know, like I I've I have a much bigger appreciation. We read something like 60 books for the show, right? Somewhere mm-hmm. in there, 50, 50 to 60 books. Um, in one single field for the most part that is all angled toward one particular thing. And I feel like this show in particular has given me a very fine-grained understanding of what is a book what's a dissertation and what is a dissertation book you know like what are the the levels in between those two things um of because dissertation in case you don't know because you're not an academic which is uh you know good on you shout out to you (laughs) for not being an academic uh the uh a dissertation is basically a proof of expertise is that sufficient michael i'm sure you actually know the the history behind the dissertation don't you uh uh not too much honestly okay. but yes a uh, proof of expertise is is the general idea of what a dissertation is like uh the thing that i heard in grad school a couple times from various people 
is that you cannot get too hung up on like making your dissertation say like perfect because the point of the dissertation is not to be like a perfect groundbreaking work of scholarship it is to demonstrate to your committee and anyone else who happens to be in the room and read it that you have a sufficient command of the methods and uh, sort of you know bench of literature in in your field or your scholarly interest to say things that are coherent cogent uh and defensible uh about the thing that you're talking about yeah, and a lot of that is being able to say, what is my field? You know, mm-hmm. what what is the thing you're doing? And in some disciplines, right, kind of depending on what you do, and in certain disciplines, it's going to look very different, right? You know, my dissertation, and your dissertation too, to, to, to be frank, right, because I've, I've read big chunks of Michael's dissertation. Uh, our dissertations are very odd documents, is that is that a fair thing to say? <laughs> I yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, the, both of our dissertations are like big, weird theory documents, and yours is grounded in a particular time and place, and mine is too, right? Mine is yeah. grounded in like twentieth and twenty first century um, media theory and studies, but also like my dissertation is all about like Fred Moten and Mel- Manuel Delanda and like how to make their work talk to one another in order to talk about human finitude, right? Like it's stuff that I've never gone back to publish on even a single time, right? <laughs> Just because like partially it's too big, you know, like I, my, my dissertation is this beast and, and yours is uh, much more cogent and readable than mine is, I think, um, but also fairly odd for your discipline, right? You were doing some theory work that uh, is... Uh, not outre, right? But like mm-hmm. uh, that other people in early modern studies are less interested in doing, I think is a, a way of putting it, right? Yeah. Well, I, it's not that like I, you know, I was affiliated with like post-humanism, uh, mm-hmm. whatever we wanted to define that or call it, which wasn't exactly outre, but I think my method was a little odd because I was about historicizing post-humanist theory with regard to actual 15th and 16th century humanism, which some other people uh, do as well, but n- not many of us. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, right, and and so I, I don't say that to be like, hey, let's do the dissertation power hour. What we talk about there. So that's not why I'm I'm summarizing these documents, but to say that a dissertation like exists to clear a requirement broadly, mm-hmm. uh, and the way you approach that is often disciplinarily specific. You know, you you have this thing. I was in a program that was heavily theoretically oriented. Uh, you were in a program that was heavily historicist, right? And mm-hmm. we did weird stuff within that, right? But ultimately, it was geared toward what the expectations of our fundamentally our advisors wanted, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so they're these really kind of uh, they're scalpels as documents. They prove that you know it's like a scalpel with an arm, right? Like you prove all of your um, uh, reps you've done in graduate school, all the things you've read. That's the development of the arm, right? Like you you've got the most powerful. Uh, surgical arm you can and then the dissertation argument itself is like the tip of the scalpel it's like this small weird little thing that you've done all this work all the all these reps all this build up to to operate as well as you can and then you do the thing so that's all to say the book of video games and agency is the scalpel tip mm-hmm of the thing, Th- this is a book that is a dissertation. I mean, I, I scan through the dissertation itself. Uh, the content is largely the same, not not in terms of like word by word. I didn't check that level, but like the chapters are all the same. They're all looking at the same stuff, and I'm sure there's been development and things like that. But it makes the book a little bit. Uh, it makes the book 
really powerful as a resource document because mm-hmm. it does a lot of work, way more work than I've ever done, certainly, to understand the historical shape of agency within game studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a very useful document if you want to chase up a big bibliography of that going back to the dawn of game studies. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Yeah. So that's really great. It's really useful. And like if that's all it did, that would be very helpful, actually. Um, but it does another thing. It also produces an argument. But because this is a dissertation book, it produces an argument that is, like I said, like a scalpel. Right. It does one thing and it does one thing very efficiently. And it is uninterested in talking to things outside of the one thing. Mm hmm. Um, and so the book is, on one hand, really useful if you're you're coming to it for questions of agency. I think it is less useful, perhaps, if you're coming to it for anything other than the very particular thing that it does with agency. Um, and so we're probably going to talk about the book in kind of two stages. One, the big, broad, historical summative agency stuff, and then what it actually does with that argument, which um, I am I think is good, but I'm less interested in personally as like a scholar or academic, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, I mean, the, the way that I would pitch it is that this is a book that, uh, in big picture, uh, provides a definition of agency in video games, or at least a way of understanding what agency means in the context of video games, um, uh, spins up a kind of method for then talking about and investigating how that type of agency is produced, um, and, uh, the other kind of part of the method is like, uh, uh, this is one of the real innovations I think is not just looking at the object itself, but looking at, uh, basically promotional paratexts, uh, developer logs and things like that. Uh, understanding that agency is not just uh, a thing that happens between the player and the game necessarily, but is also something that we are conditioned to expect or look for based on the way that games are talked about. Yeah. Um, and I think this is really cool, and we're going to have a lot to say about it, but uh, basically comes up with this definition of agency, a method for investigating it, uh, and then applies it in three very different contexts to see what what comes out, right? When you look at it this way, what can you say about uh, different games? What do you notice that you might not have noticed otherwise? What sort of emerges uh, and what's interesting? And I mean, that big picture like it's an interesting book for that like it it has this method it demonstrates the method and i think there is some really interesting stuff that uh you get in each of the three case studies yeah i think so too yeah uh and uh i you know i've been chastised for this before so i say it advisedly very european in, in its in its outlook, <laughs> and and by only you know I only mean that in the sense that there there is a pretty marked difference. And I've talked about this in previous episodes before. There is a marked difference in the style of what I would call broadly European game studies. Obviously, we all know that legally the United Kingdom is not part of the UK, or <laughs> not part of Europe. Um, uh, you know, had a big there was a big to do about it. I heard. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, th- this is a book that uh, sets up a typology. You know, sets up, does some theory work, sets up a typology, uh, and then has case studies where the typology is applied. Mm-hmm. You know that, like, and that is the thing. Um, American game studies works just quite a bit differently, and obviously, there's world game studies in different kind of pockets that all do different things. You know, there's not just two regions or something like that. 
But I think if you're looking for kind of key differences between the ways that certain institutions and institutional practices work, this is one of them, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the book is pretty cleanly split, as you just said, between that theory work and then the kind of case study chapters that give us some ideas for it. But really, at the end of the rainbow, right, those case studies are there to prove to us that the typology of agency works. And like, I got to be honest here up at the top, it has nothing to do with this book and everything to do with me. These kinds of typologies rarely work for me. Um, like I am, uh, you know, I'm someone who looks at a typology and says immediately, well, I play a lot of video games and a bunch of things just don't fit in here. Or mm -hmm. we have to bend them so much to make them fit in here. Or we have to bend the categories so much to make them fit in here that it's not particularly helpful for me to do the analysis. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like, if you're that kind of person, if you're just a stick in the mud about typologies, this might not do a whole lot for you. And it's in its, uh, big theory construct, but big, but here. Uh, the arguments are really good, right? Mm -hmm. And like the 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 beat by beat to get to the typology, I think is really strong. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I don't say any of that to be critical of the book, really whatsoever. I think that that theory work is is sound. Uh, but really, just to say that, like, if you come in here and uh, you you kind of bulk into typology like I do, don't be too worried about it. Uh, yeah. And even the case study uh, chapters. They give you a lot to work with beyond just here's where the thing is. I mean, they're mostly histories, which is really interesting. Yeah, I have a lot to say about that. But on the typology note, I also want to add as someone who is also I I, I don't think I um maybe as I don't think I chafe against typologies maybe as much as you do, but I do chafe. Like I tend to be very skeptical of them, and I think one of the strengths of this book is that Bodhi is very upfront of saying like I have consciously limited. Uh, the games that I am talking about and sort of like I, I'm not talking about certain types of games because they just don't fit in this rubric that I'm building without me rebuilding the rubric. Uh, mm -hmm. And like the book ends with a couple of points being, you know, here are some things that are very common in games that I didn't talk about at all. And it might be interesting if someone tried to extend this research by uh, uh, picking up some of these pieces and in, in rebuilding a new typology or something like that. So uh, it is flagged explicitly as being non-exhaustive, um, mm -hmm. which is yeah. like that goes a long way for me. It's like, OK, you're building a typology, but also you understand that like you, you cannot... Uh, contain the sum total of the world in your little crystal cube. Have you considered uh, maybe fitting the sum total of the world in your tiny crystal cube? <laughs> like, I understand what you're saying, mm -hmm. but have you really thought about trying? <laughs> it Why looks not? safe in there. It's like Why some not? sort of bottled city of Candor situation, right? It's good. Yeah. 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 That worked out famously well. I, uh, yeah, they get kidnapped a lot. Uh, <laughs> I was recently a guest on a comics podcast, and I felt the nerddom flowing into me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, where it was like it, being in a room where you're like, you know, the bottled city of Candor, and everyone laughs. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like <laughs> be, being like a David Sudnow style, uh, like cocktail party. Yes. And yeah, everyone's having a gin chill thing, and you go, the bottled city of Candor, and everyone goes, ha 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 ha, and they like sip their martinis or whatever. Mm -hmm. It was like that, uh, which, which is fun. <laughs> You want to talk about the intro here? Is there anything else we need to say about Bodhi? I don't think so. Uh, no, I mean, uh, she's a very new scholar. So other like uh, uh, I read her write up on the uh, faculty page at the lead on the Leeds Beckett uh, University website. And it is you know, sometimes it's a person who's maybe like jumped into game studies from a different field or whatever. But Bodhi like 
She is interested in video games and agency, and in particular, agency is kind of a, a, a thing that is downstream of technological affordances, which is all over this book, and mm -hmm. uh, that's what her book is about, right? So that's what we're up to here. But yeah, new scholar. Uh, probably weird to get an episode of this show about you. <laughs> you know? Here comes the summer of agency. <laughs> uh, that, you know what? We haven't made... Here's... As of this recording, I made a uh, a graphic for the summer of agency. I was wondering if you had <laughs> posted this. Uh, and I forgot to post it. Just straight... We had a lot of stuff posting all at one time. You know, like back to back to back. We had a bunch of different episodes of other stuff. We had a new and show launch. And I... Right, and I was just like, I, yeah, we got a new show. We'll talk about that. We got a new show. If you like this show, you will like the other show we just launched, I promise. But we'll talk about that at the end of the episode. Um, but uh, but yeah, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till we have like a clear few days. We have not had a clear few days. And so I think I will announce the Summer of Agency, of which this is the first uh, uh, entry. We're going to read a whole summer of books about agency. That's the end of the story. It's not too elaborate. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm going to wait till the day this comes out, and I'm going to tweet it out then. So we, when someone is hearing this, you'll be able to see the full summer of agency. But as of right now, the summer of agency is secret, <laughs> as all agential action is. Of course. Mm -hmm. This is my Gene Wolfe coming out. I'm like, uh, in in any moment where a human finds agency in the world, there's a second secret agency that thrives beneath that is unknown to them and designed by the pan creator itself. Uh, so introduction. Uh, introduction this, to the book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this basically uh, it's it's very much an introduction. It explains in brief kind of uh, the intervention that. Bodhi is making vis-a-vis -vis this idea of agency, you know, so it's uh, less than the, the next chapter. Uh, here's how video game scholars tend to talk about agency. Here's what I am doing that is slightly different. Uh, here's the other scholar that I am bringing into conversation here. Uh, here is the uh, uh, kind of methodological uh, add-on that comes along with that about paratexts. Uh, and then here is like the thing that I developed, which is, uh, and I'm quoting here from page five, a multidimensional heuristic framework. Uh, so that's that's the model, right? The typology for understanding uh, how agencies work in games in this in this way. Um, and then the rest of the book just ex like expands on all of that, moving through it in about that same uh, uh, kind of process, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Long history of agency in video games. Here's how Bodhi is understanding that. Here is how Bodhi is going to investigate that. And then bam, bam, bam. Here are the case studies. It, it's true. Yeah, the, this uh, this intro has got a lot of like really interesting uh, distinction work. Because when you, when you write a book, right? When you write any kind of long form academic thing, your introduction has got to be like, Really, what it has to do at the end at the end of the the road, right? It has to say what you're doing and what you're not doing, <laughs> um, and I think this is a really good introduction for doing that. Particularly the the uh, what are you doing part, which is that this is based in kind of two, well, maybe three major theoretical paradigms, right? Uh, and making them talk to one another. So one is affordance theory, mm -hmm. and this is affordance theory coming out of Gibson. Uh, not Don Norman. Um, Bodhi does selfishly. I think this book is great. Uh, for for if if it only did this, it would be great because very selfishly, this is like a hobby horse argument that I also have. Uh, 
which is that <laughs> Don Norman warped a Fordance theory into a nightmare version of itself. And Gibson's version, uh, which is which predates it by, I don't know, 20 years, something like that, uh, which is where Norman pulls it from, is much more comprehensive, much less attached to design as such. It's not just a theory of design. It's a theory of kind of experience. It's, it's almost a phenomenology with all this like weird biological stuff in it as well. Um, and, and it gives you a much more robust way of understanding what an affordance might be. You know, uh, Gibson's one of Gibson's key examples is a rabbit in a field, right? Like mm-hmm. Don Norman is talking about chairs and doors and shit, right? And Gibson's out <laughs> here inventing affordance theory being like, all right, look, when a rabbit is in a field, what does it see? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, and so when I've taught this before, like a media studies class classroom, I've like drawn the diagram that Gibson draws, which is like a rabbit in a field and being like, all right, let's walk through it. Let's do it. And they're like, we came here to talk about movies. What are you saying to me? <laughs> um, but uh, but it's really helpful. And Bodhi doesn't get super deep into it, but I do like the kind of going back to the more original version. At some point, we'll do Gibson or we'll do Norman, and I will like unleash my vitriol for Don Norman uh, in in full form. You know, mm-hmm. I'll go full carry kaiju on this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the that, Norman that conquest that that'll be that summer. <laughs> Reversing the Norman conquest, yeah. <laughs> uh, be, be taking him back the field of Forden. Anyway, but so that's really cool to me. I, I like that maneuver that happens here. Um, the other one is kind of paratextual studies, right? Like. Mm-hmm. What what is happening uh, with paratexts and how do things work? Uh, maybe you might want to say something about that in a second. And then the last one is formalism. Um, that the that we have lots of game formalists, right? And that 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 term was thrown around uh, quite a lot, very negatively. And oh, I don't know, 2012, 2013, 2014, mm-hmm. um, and uh, for for good reasons, um, I I think. Um, but the uh, but the formalism that Bodhi is like kind of going to and talking about is, hey, there are things in games that prompt us to certain behavior. Those things in games have certain forms. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should talk about those forms. Right. Um, it, it does something. The way that the object is shaped pulls out certain behaviors from you or forces a response from you, right? It doesn't mean that because the first-person shooter... Uh, only allows you to interact with the world through, you know, the barrel of a gun. It doesn't mean you only understand the world through a barrel, barrel of a gun, but it does set up a parameter for a kind of conversation between you and the game and the agential force that you can uh, express through it, right? You know, it, mm-hmm. it determines something. And so maybe we should think about those things. Um, and so that, I think those things are really cool and they all get their own kind of uh, lead out throughout the rest of the chapter, but th- those are the three big ideas. Do you, we've talked about paratex on this show before. Do you want to give the like one sentence summary of of paratex, or do you want me to to jump on it? Uh, I can uh, talk about paratex. So uh, paratex comes out of Gerard Jeanette's uh, narratology theory uh, that, in his instance, is being used to refer to things like uh, that. Backing up a little bit, uh, paratext, right? Para. That's one thing. Text. That's the other thing. Push them together, you get a paratext. So the uh, para means, you know, about, around, not quite the thing itself, but an orbit around it. The paratext then for Jeanette is uh, him making a claim that when you are talking about a book or a novel, uh, rather, uh, you should, or rather, not that you should, but like if you want to, right, uh, you should probably think about like an introduction, 
written by the author or someone else? Is there like a dedication? Is there a prefatory thing in the novel, right? All of the things that are not quite, you know, the novel text itself. Mm -hmm. uh, what precedes that? Is there an epilogue? Is there an appendix at the end, right? A glossary, something like that. Um, how do you talk about those things? Uh, because, as Jeanette would say, uh, those things exert some kind of pull on the narrative practice, right? They are, they are part of reading, even though they are not the story itself. Uh, so yeah. uh, Bodhi uses this uh, to talk... Uh, uh, moves it sort of outward because we're talking about video games here, not novels, uh, to talk about uh, all of the material that is produced around a game or games uh, that in some way, again, like influences the the theoretical player experience of that game. And so just to uh, quote some of her examples here from page four, uh, for her, this includes journalistic coverage, both subject specialist and more general. Uh, conventions, conferences, and other trade events, analog and digital marketing and advertising, such as packaging, adverts, and trailers, developer or dev blogs, and official websites, blogs, forums, and verified social media accounts of games, studios, publishers, individual developers, and other participants in the production and distribution of video games, such as hardware and software companies. Uh, so the idea there being that we don't come to video games knowing what agency is. <laughs> uh, we are in fact kind of prompted by the marketing and the discussion around games and not even just games. Cause as she says, like, uh, uh, like how, did, how was it put, uh, uh, hardware and software companies, right? Uh, if there's a new processor that comes out, is there some sort of marketing blurb that says like, uh, something evocative of like how much more agency the players are going to have with the software mm -hmm. that runs on this new processor, right? Uh, yep. agency is a thing that is mediated through discourse that we are kind of trained to see or prompted to see or recognize in certain ways that may or may not line up to the actual experience of fiddling with the object. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but nevertheless, that's important. And an explicit exclusion here that is also important to note um, is that Bodhi does not go for transmedia materials, right? Like, we're not going to talk about the Halo novels or anything to understand, like, how that complicates our understanding of, of Master Chief's agency or what have you. Uh, she is focused very explicitly on w what we might think of as promotional materials, marketing materials. Uh, but that also includes, like, you know, postmortem interviews or, or whatever, yeah, this is the place where I really I was like, well, I don't know, like I don't know where we're going here, right? You know, I I've also been weirdly enough in the paratext world. I I don't write about paratext. I like kind of I I don't reject the theorization itself, but like the theoretical angle from which I approach games doesn't really need a theory of paratext to work. I just don't see there being actually a strong split between the game object itself and the cultural context around it, you know. The game is produced by the culture and the culture produces the game. And so I never really theorize that work um, in, in my own work, just because to me it is so flatly true that these two things are the case. You know, I remember at one point I was being edited by uh, Austin Walker, who was on our other show with us, Shelf by Genre. If you want to check that out, we'll talk about it at the end of the episode. But I was being edited by Austin and uh, he was like, hey, G you know, have you noticed that every time you're writing about a game, you start writing about the advertising around it too? And I was like, yeah, because <laughs> it is the thing. It like sets you off, right? It, it right. sets the terms of engagement in some ways. Um, and so I've been in this again with the uh, Assassin's Creed book I'm working on, right? As I'm as I'm kind of finishing that up. Um, the that it, 
it's almost entirely dominated by paratexts, right? And so I've been in this literature and reading kind of the franchise theory work and media mix theory work uh, that does this stuff. And uh, the kind of theoretical maneuver here to split it off, you know, the thing that that uh, Bodhi says is, uh, uh, quotes Jaroslav Svelch and says, uh, the concept of video game paratext got so overinflated that some even used it to describe such things as tie-in novels and web series. Mm-hmm. And like I'm just here to say, or like from the perspective of the paratext industrial complex, those things are paratexts, right? Yeah. <laughs> just because you don't want to talk about them is totally fine. Like you can bracket those things off. And in fact, in my Assassin's Creed book, I have done a kind of, weird operation to to talk less about those than people might expect or want um precisely because it is so inflationary right it's the same reason she doesn't want to talk about them here is that it inflates the um the thing you can actually talk about here like wide and beyond however novels are paratexts right like mm-hmm. Um, they work that way, you know, uh, Jeanette says uh, that there there can be a paratext without a text, but there can never be a text without a paratext, mm-hmm. uh, which is very funny to me. Um, you know, you can have a non-centralizing portion of the thing, you know, you can yeah. you can have like a constellation with no sun or like a, a solar system with no sun, uh, <laughs> but you can't have a sun without a solar system, yeah. uh, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I'm just flagging that for people who if you get really excited about this and you read this really good one paragraph summary that she does of the logic here, uh, it is not an uh, I, I think that there is an overstatement happening here on Bodhi's part to exclude those things. Those things are paratexts. It's just not the stuff that that she or Svelch are interested in, um, and that's fine. You can bracket certain paratexts off, but it is a part of that. It's a well worn part of cultural studies and the franchise work that, that's been done there or in and around that field. So I, I really wanted to flag that uh, because it seems like uh, if you only read this and, and this was your only kind of introduction to that, it might be easy to get the wrong idea there. Mm-hmm. Is that the introduction? Yeah, I think that's, a, you know, basically the introduction and, you know, the conclusion of that with the multidimensional heuristic framework that we're going to get uh, the construction of in the next chapter, which is understanding agency, uh, which, as you said, is uh, just admirably exhaustive. Like, just so many people are being cited here and brought into conversation in in uh, Bodhi's attempts to figure out the various ways that other people have talked about agency in this field, um, and then also distinguish her own method. Uh, and I guess the the, the top-level distinguishing move, um, which is not, like, unique to Bodhi, but rather to show how, like, which track she takes, uh, the question you can ask yourself, where does agency reside? Is it something that is, like, in the object? Is it in us? Uh, uh... And Bodhi's kind of answer is, well, it's actually a kind of uh, loop, right? That agency is a phenomenon that is experienced when someone comes into contact with a game uh, and they play it. They do. uh, Actually, here's here's where I'll put this in. I've been wondering where I could say this um, because it's kind of a it it was something that struck me about the book. Um, When we get into the case studies uh, in the fact that you brought up uh, that time Austin was editing you and mentioning your your kind of public facing writing on this uh, is it aligns nicely here. Uh, when we get into the case studies, there is something about the case studies here that actually feels very similar to a long game review. Now, it's not that because yeah. because yeah. Bodie's uh, uh, interest is not being like, is the game good or bad? 
is the agency good or bad? Should you buy the game or not? That's not her question. She's she's interested in other things. But the, that would be a big maneuver to do. <laughs> it is at the be. end to say, I recommend buying Uncharted 4, <laughs> yes. A Thief's End. <laughs> That would be good. <laughs> People should do that in academic books. They should. They should. If you write about a game, you should tell us if we should buy it or not. Mm-hmm. Take some of the heat off game reviewers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I was trying to figure out like what was going on here. Like why did? Because I had the senses I was reading. I was like these. These feel a lot like reviews, but they're not reviews. And like what's doing that for me? Like what's mm-hmm. happening here? Um, and it is because the the method that uh, Bodhi eventually develops work something like the method of a game review because they both start from kind of the foundational point that games are things that you do stuff with that like it's a it's a program that you fiddle around in and so like question number one what does the game allow you to do like what Mm -hmm. when you sit down to play this game what are you doing and then like you know you personally as the player how does that translate into stuff that happens within the world of the game right the narrative or diegesis or whatever um but then also uh how did the people involved in the production of this thing talk about it and how can we see the things they talked about manifesting in the thing they made or not and if whether or not they you know manifest or not uh, what can we say then about that? Like, was it a misstep? Uh, what was misaligned if something doesn't show up, right? Uh, if something does show up, how can we figure out, uh, or what can we maybe say about the production process that shows an alignment in motives and goals between different people or different teams or what have you? Um, so this idea of understanding agency as a thing that occurs when you sit down and you start fiddling with the game, pressing the buttons, uh, what is it that you do? Uh, you know, uh, and then how is it designed for you to do that? The game has agency or potentials for agency designed within it. Uh, and what were the values or the concerns or the goals or the objectives of the people who designed those opportunities for the player to feel agential? And uh, and here's everyone who's ever thought about that before. And here's where we go with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, this you know, is one of the kind of the thing here. Yeah, this is uh, uh, one of the... Um, points where the like field is sort of like not not the yeah actually yes the the, the field of objects that Bodhi is going to discuss gets a little bit narrowed uh and actually just to say some of the stuff that she talks about right like uh she covers a little bit the ludology narratology debates right she talks about uh Janet Murray's theory theorization of agency which she positions as kind of a very um uh, primordial theorization of agency within game studies and of course there's like a million other people who show up here but Murray is is sort of front loaded uh, particularly because Murray's understanding of agency is such such a good uh, contrast because Murray's theorization of agency from Hamlet on the Hollow Deck is about making meaningful choices within a narrative. So it's purely about uh, there is a story that is happening. Uh, the player gets to make a decision uh, or like does something, and then there are consequences for that later on that feel meaningful. And that's mm-hmm. ultimately not enough for Bodhi. Bodhi wants to talk about some other things. Uh, and this is how she gets there is saying, well, yeah, uh, so there is narrative agency, but sometimes you play a game and the narrative isn't the point. The agency is about like exploration or what have you. Um, and she ends up narrowing kind of her scope by focusing specifically on 
uh, games with avatars in them, like player character avatars, uh, because she focuses on them as, and this is from page 25, quote, the translator of player action into in-game action. So the avatar is really useful for Bodhi as uh, this narrowing device for scope, because uh, she apprehends the avatar as a point in the game system where the player's feelings about agency get uh, funneled in and then expand out into the actual game system. So uh, it's a good like focal point, I think, for making this project manageable for her. But it also means that... Uh, the method that she gives you here doesn't quite apply, or, or not doesn't quite apply, but you have to do some work to get this to apply to, like, Tetris or something, just to go for the easy example where there's not, like, a specific thing on the screen that you are, uh, unless we're going to think about the, the little tetroids or whatever they call them as avatars, which I don't, I mean, maybe someone's done that, but typically that's not how you approach Tetris. Well, let me tell you this. In game studies, if you can make Tetris do a thing, someone's made Tetris do the thing. <laughs> of course. Uh, I think that's a, that's a safe assumption. Yeah, this is like the first move in the book where I was like, ah, I don't know. Uh, like, I understand the efficientness of it, but it, this does do like an academic work thing where it's not just about efficiency and like putting um bounds on the project you know and i think it, that maybe if the book had just said that right like explicitly only that thing right hey mm. agency's big avatars are a useful way of talking about agency let's do it but it's it gets kind of produced as necessity right mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. avatars are the best way i think there's something like that that's said here right um uh i don't have the page right no i do have the page right in front of me um yeah, like the sub the the sub the ooh, subheading here is agency is player slash avatar action, mm -hmm. right? Like there's a way that the, uh, that this is necessitated down, and it's just like I this that's not helpful to me because like God games, for example, or city builders, you know the these like genres I or RTSs or. Um, just strategy games broadly, right? They're all agency, right? Like right. they are in fact reducible down to human agents making decisions in systems. Um, and that's not like in any way to be critical of this book, but just to say that like, if you're only interested in the one piece, I don't know if we need to theorize backward why this is the only way we could go, right? Um, and like the section's really short and it I don't know necessarily that it proves its point here, which so that was really kind of disappointing to me where I was like, oh, OK, this is this is a book that's about a very particular actual kind of game. And it's not really about avatars to me. It's about game genre. Um, you know, it is about essentially third person action games um, and the different flavors of that. So. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I was like, I don't, you know, I kind of wish this was a little bit different. This, this whole chapter, right. Has the real feeling of like that necessity thing that a dissertation has going on, mm -hmm. which is like, here's the big proof. And then here's my thin argument that I need to prove true. Right. And like, this is mm -hmm. obviously a mechanism to help someone get there. But, uh, it, you know, this is also a, a chapter where like the citational apparatus, like actively gets in the way of being able to read the text. Um, and I don't know if you experienced this, but like just the sheer number of parenthetical citations, um, it might the, be one to one, right? Th there are moments where the, the parentheticals get, uh, I, the, an efflorescence of parenthetical citations. Right. Which is why it's so helpful as a chapter, right? Like I, I'm not really <laughs> critical of that in the abstract, right? It's so good because it does have literally anyone who's ever talked about agency, it seems. 
and what they've got going on in there. I agree. <laughs> I uh, I love this brutal takedown of this other book on agency. <laughs> Did you see this? Oh, uh, which one? I'm checking. This Domsch book. I, which I'm not familiar with. No, I did not see this. Uh, it's on 17 for me. A more considered critical engagement with previous scholarship on agency and game studies and game design discourse could have made the forwarded points stronger. Despite these issues, however, there are some productive points in the argument that outline interesting conceptual <laughs> distinction, distinctions. So this is actually, speaking of European, <laughs> uh, I noticed a couple of these moments throughout the book. This is what feels very European to me, is this way of... Um, uh, critiquing the argument you're citing, uh, but in a very dry and fairly even-handed way, whereas I feel like an American uh, book or an American dissertation book is actually going to go for more blood. <laughs> oh, I So I skipped the part that has the most blood on accident here. Let yeah. me read it. I mean, it still is very kind of genteel, right? But yeah. um, Domsch's book-length study on agency in games is that the discussion is seriously hamstrung by inconsistencies and inaccuracies that could have been better examined had there been a more thorough exploration of key terms, and the key terms reproduced here, such as games, rule, and perhaps most unfortunately, agency. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Dang. Get him. Get him, Bodie. Uh, I mean, it's, I did look at that other book, and it seemed much less helpful to me personally. Than mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't, I can't, I can't speak to the inconsistencies and inaccuracies, but uh, it didn't look immediately interesting to me. But it might be people mm -hmm. might want to check that out if they if they want to do it. Uh, yeah. So I mean, the chapter ends uh, with the focus on like the avatar translator of player action into in game action, and the idea that agency is an object property. Uh, it is a thing that is designed into the game consciously by the designers to specific ends with specific conceptions of what agency means or what it's going to mean for the player of their game. Uh, now we need to talk about what are the dimensions. This is the word that uh, uh, Bodhi uses all the time uh, to talk about this, right? The multidimensional framework. What are the dimensions then? Uh, in which agency might manifest, and this brings us into chapter two, a multidimensional heuristic framework for analyzing player agency. Uh, mm -hmm. And here, can, can, can I read a thing before we go directly into it? Sure thing. So this is just the final summary. If all of this has been like a kind of um, intertwined for you as a listener, and you're like, well, what's Bodhi actually doing? Let me just give you the the single partial sentence summary here. Right, it's on page thirty. Quote, player agency can be conceptualized as the possibility space for meaningful choice expressed via player action that translates into avatar action afforded by a game's design. And I think that's just like an easy, you know, like here's mm -hmm. here's what's up. Here's the math problem that produces understanding agency itself. Now, to get to that possibility space, we're going to need that multidimensional heuristic. And over to you. Dr. Lutz. <laughs> uh, so the, the second chapter, the multidimensional heuristic, uh, begins with um, actually her saying that she is drawing inspiration from Gordon Calleja, uh, whose book, was it just called Immersion? Nope. Uh, I don't think so. I don't, like, we did the book for this show, but I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, I just, I, I can't, I, look, people know that I can't remember people's names. I can't remember <laughs> the names of books. In game. Hold on. In game. Is that, oh, mm -hmm. in game. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In okay. Endgame. Uh, it's the second Avengers uh, major <laughs> film. Uh, no, Endgame from immersion to incorporation. By the way, I do want to shout out Kayeha. Uh, uh, I know that we have I, we've been corrected on the pronunciation of the name. I think that is the correct one. Mm -hmm. um, but I uh, got a new book out, by the way. Unboxed, board game experience, and something else. I'm forgetting the name the whole thing. <laughs> that would be so good. 
That was the uh, title. Board game and experience some and something else. Uh, no, unboxed board game experience and design. And I bought it, and it's very cool. Uh, I think it's uh, pretty interesting. On on the longer-term Magic the Gathering project I'm working on, I think it's going to be really helpful for that. But mm-hmm. in case you like that episode and you want to check out more of what uh, what's going on there and how this changed. So from digital games to physical games, uh, it's called Unboxed, Board Game mm-hmm. Experience and Design. But yeah, so this chapter is pulling heavily from uh, that work. Yeah, uh, that was episode 26. My God. Wow. <laughs> 25 years ago. We, yeah, wow. Uh, so anyway, uh, one of the things that we marked upon as uh, distinctive about his model in that book was that whereas people talk to uh, uh, many, many scholars and people in general talk about immersion in games as kind of a, a singular thing. And one of the critiques that you and I have made uh, about our, you know, of the many critiques that we make of the concept of immersion uh, is that when people talk about immersion, you can get all a whole bunch of people who use the word immersion. Uh, to describe something that they're experiencing with the game, but they're all talking about something different. And so he develops a, a, a kind of like multipolar uh, model for what people are talking about when they talk about immersion. And that is kind of an inspiration for what Bodhi is doing here. Uh, thinking about uh, kind of tendencies or sort of a, a, a things that games tend to represent or like have in them uh, that are axes upon which different types of agency manifest. So just for example, the first dimension that she talks about is the uh, dimension that she calls spatial explorative uh, and distinguishes within uh, that that kind of field between ludic space and representational space. An example then, uh, I thought this was actually a, a really interesting uh thing to think about and talk about, right? Just in terms of how weird games are. Uh, She talks about Ghost Recon Wildlands, uh, which is a game that it's like an open world game. And as she says, you can walk from one side of the map to the other as, you know, the little avatar in four real time hours. So you, the player, you're playing Ghost Recon Wildlands, you start your walk, and four hours later, you get to the other side of the world map. So that is ludic space. Right, you have uh, agency to go across this whole space, and it takes you, you know, four hours. Like that's how much space you have, and you can explore at whatever pace you want. But if you're just going at a, you know, straight clip, four hours. Mm-hmm. How- however, as you're playing the game, when you're doing that in game, the sun will rise and set multiple times, and so the representational space of the game, like what is the game like, you know, showing you within its diegesis within the story uh, is distinct from what you have uh, access to as the player in terms of your like ludic capabilities, right? They're, that they are like a representational space and ludic space are not equivalent um, or they don't have to be, right? There absolutely can be and certainly are games where, where that is the case. Uh, but I think this is actually one of the really cool things about the heuristic that she develops in kind of this method is it allows you to uh, disclose kind of the weird double logic of playing a video game. Yeah, I I think all of the argumentation here mm-hmm. is correct. I would struggle to figure out a way to use this. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I like that is that is entirely just me and my process, right? right? But but it's the kind of thing where if if you want to find the heuristic in the world, 
we can find the heuristic in the world. And it's probably very helpful, actually, for you might need to change the language a little bit, but it, this actually might be more helpful for developers than anyone else uh, in that you could take the heuristic. And if you wanted to make a 3D avatar based game, you could take these heuristics and put them up on a board and figure out game mechanics to afford certain versions of it. It, it feels very this is another typology I don't have a lot of use for, right? But it feels very uh, Richard Bartle, right? And the, mm. the player types, if only because it it gives you some parameters. And if you want to design two parameters, uh, these are kind of prepackaged ones that speak to a lot of different like desires within within games, right? Um, this is a uh, this is a criticism that I have, I guess, throughout the rest of the book, because I don't really know what to do with these heuristics other than to apply them as heuristics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I don't know what this gives me outside of that, other than to say, these are ways that agency is afforded within the thing. Mm-hmm. That's uh, cool. That's fine. But it is useful for that thing. If you can figure out what you want to do with that tool, they are really capacious and compelling tools to do with that. Right. And like a good contrast to what I just said about the Ghost Recon example is her next example, which is Mortal Kombat. And actually, this applies to, you know, most fighting games uh, where you like the the two, well, your avatar and either the other player's avatar or the computer avatar uh, are kind of stuck on an axis, right, in your fighting game arena. Uh, You don't you can move back and forth and maybe up and down. But uh, you don't have a lot of, like, the, the, the point here is not to explore the space, right? You have, like, the background of the arena behind you and animations and all sorts of cool things that may be going on. Uh, but that's, like, purely representational. Uh, the So then space in that sense, right, or in these games, uh, ends up being more representational, uh, rather than ludic, because actually ludic space is just, you know, whatever your X, Y and uh, you know, like the back and forth and up down axes that your uh, uh, characters are going to bop around along. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next here, uh, uh, sort of dimension, uh, actually, so the thing I was going to add, this is I, I know, you know, this is this is not even a critique, I guess. It's actually like a weird, shameful thing to say. Uh, I can't believe I'm saying it. Because of the language that Bodhi uses for these terms, I was actually hungry for a diagram or a table or something. Um, because all of the language around them... I the can't next- believe this is the last episode of the show. I know. Here we are. I can't this believe is- we're never going to record again. <laughs> You've betrayed me in a way that's that, that unforgivable. Right. Well, so we have like uh, 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 spatial explorative. That was the last one. And the next one is temporal ergodic. Uh, and just because of the, like, this is the, the format for the names of all of these dimensions is that it's kind of like a, a hyphenated fusion of two sort of related terms. Uh, and then like within that, a kind of subdivision between two further kind of implications for, uh, what they might mean in terms of game design or the experience of gameplay. And at some point I was just like, I really wish I had something that I could flip back to and double check just to make sure I'm keeping all this stuff straight in my head. Maybe that's on me. Maybe I, you know, gave up my own agency by not writing my own table as I was reading the book. Anyway, uh, temporal ergodic, uh, is really interesting because, uh, so like just temporal is, you know, does the game have like day night cycles, uh, when it's nighttime in the game, what changes do shopkeepers close up, right? You can't like your agency gets constrained. We actually didn't even really talk about, uh, the sort of the theorization of agency here or rather like, you know, the, the 
one clear thing to make or clear point to make about uh, Bodhi's idea of agency is that agency is not a thing where it's like this game gives you more agency and this game gives you less agency and like one's good and one's bad or like, you know, overall we can rate this game on a, a like this game has seven agency, right? It's right. not that. <laughs> um, right. Uh, agency is a thing for Bodhi that is produced through like uh, affordances, but also constraints. Like, how does the game let you do things? How does the game stop you from doing other things? So at nighttime, do the shopkeepers close up? Do you get like new enemy encounters that make the world more dangerous or something like that? Uh, and then related to it, related to the, the day-night cycle stuff, um, can the player manipulate the flow of time or does, uh, you know, time kind of progress uniformly regardless of what the player wants to do? So, uh, uh, you know, can you speed up time like you can in The Sims or can you like, you know, like this is actually the better way to put it in something like the new Legend of Zelda games, right? Breath of the Wild or Tears of the Kingdom. Uh, you can control the flow of time technically, uh, but it's not like a rich game mechanic. It's like go to a fire, sit down, and you can like skip the in-game clock forward uh, to noon, night, uh, midnight, dawn, whatever, versus yeah. another game where you might be able to actually like something like Braid, like go forward in time, reverse time, what have you. And thinking about like those two ways of interacting with time as distinct sort of systems for game design. Uh, the next heuristic then, uh, is called configurative constructive, the configurative constructive dimension, uh, which is, uh, can you customize like your avatar's appearance and or its powers and skills? And this is, I think, an important distinction is that Bodhi kind of conflates these things because I think in some games, you know, both of these things may happen. And in some games, it may be more about customizing appearance or customizing your skill tree. Uh, but for her, those are both configurative, right? Uh, can I configure things about my avatar and its abilities in ways that give me some abilities in the world versus others? Uh, then constructive is sort of like, you know, can the same thing be done with the environment? Like, how do I manipulate the environment? Are there destructibles? Can I, like, build little uh, gadgets and doohickeys? Uh, or is the world kind of inert and I just sort of move through it? Uh, oh, actually, this is another really weird, uh, interesting, like, point that she raises through the, the configurative constructive thing where she's talking about Fallout 4. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she points out that uh, you can see differences in like representational construction versus like what the player can do, because when you are in, in Fallout 4, uh, when you see like pre-built assets that are out in the world like these half-ruined buildings, you'll see the, uh, the like, girders and struts and things that are, like, the skeletons of these ruined buildings that would have supported them when they were, like, fully functional or whatever. Mm -hmm. However, you as the player, when you construct things, you don't have to worry about that. You can, like, you know, put an upright wall that is freestanding and made of concrete, and it'll just stand, and then you can just, like, you know, build a platform on top of that, and you don't have to worry about thinking through all of the actual physics that are at play. So there's a distinction between, like, some representational uh, construction versus, like, what the player actually does. So I thought that was interesting. Um, 
And then the final uh, dimension is narrative dramatic agency, uh, which I've summarized in my notes, basically saying, is there a scripted story? If so, how is it told? And to what degree does the avatar fit as a representational node into that story? Uh, so that's, you know, just kind of narrative agency uh, versus dramatic agency, which is more like context dependent. So if something... Uh, narrative or dramatic agency becomes a way uh, for Bodhi to talk about what we think of as like emergent moments of narrative uh, versus scripted moments of narrative. Uh, at any point, do you feel like you can do something uh, dramatic, not in like the strongest sense of that term necessarily, but like, can you do something that uh, as a player you feel like has weight or heft in the world in terms of the story that is telling about the characters that it represents and that you're fiddling around with? Yep, and that's that. That is the heuristic, the multi-dimensional heuristic mm -hmm. framework for analyzing player agency. Uh, so that uh, takes care of our, you know, theoretical chapters, and the next three are the case studies. Uh, chapter three then is an active cinematic experience, Naughty Dog's Uncharted series. Uh, and these case studies are where I think some of the most interesting uh, outputs of the method show up. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly, like, just, I mean, the, this, like, this work with Naughty Dog, I think, is really, really interesting and cool. Basically, uh, rather than just, like, hop into Uncharted immediately and start talking about it, uh, Bodhi... Uh, traces Naughty Dog's game development practices and kind of what they were known for, what were the signature things that they did, what were the ways that they talked about, like, from from Bash, <laughs> Bash Crandicoot, uh, from Crash Bandicoot forward, uh, what was the way that design was talked about at Naughty Dog, and can we see a continuity with that in terms of how design is talked about with the Uncharted series? And then, within that, how do we see the development of the, the discussion of game design through the Uncharted series, from the first installment through uh, Thief's End, with some, like, you know, a token acknowledgments that The Last of Us happened along the way? Um... But I think that this is really rich because one of the the, the, the big kind of thing that jumps out to me here, uh, everyone, everyone who's a familiar with Uncharted knows that like Uncharted wants to be a movie, right? The Uncharted games are like cinematic. They are definitionally like what cinematic might be in a video game today. Mm -hmm. Um and this involves a lot of, like, production stuff, and Bodhi gets into that, right? Like, up to the point that uh, uh, production at Naughty Dog uh, mirrors production of actual films in terms of, like, doing mocap or uh, uh, cap uh, uh, face capture and, like, how they do Foley and things like that. Um, but she traces that backward to Crash Bandicoot and notes that even here at the beginning, uh, one of the ways that... Uh, Naughty Dog uh, uh, conceived of themselves as making an intervention in essentially the, the field of, like, character platformers because Crash Bandicoot was put forth as, you know, the, the Sony mascot for the PlayStation, um, like, you know, Contra, like Mario and Sonic. Um, the innovation that Naughty Dog saw themselves as making in terms of that uh, was about mimicking traditional forms of animation and bringing that into a video game context. And so there's uh, this kind of cross-media or transmedia or translative uh, between media 
uh, ethos, and this is actually a big term that we sort of skipped over, is that like one of the things that Bodhi is trying to do here is excavate in as much as she can uh, what the design ethos, you know, the sort of like mm-hmm. predisposition or personality or whatever uh, of a particular studio is. And then do we see that manifest in the things that they make? And if so, how? Yeah, the, the quotation that comes up here somewhere from Druckmann, uh, who is one of the studio leads at at uh, um, Naughty Dog, right, and worked on the last Uncharted, um, you know, in a director, was a game director for Uncharted 4, along with Shraley, maybe. Uh, but, uh, but the, you know, someone in a meeting pitches something really hard, and and someone says, ah, that's really difficult to do. And then someone in the room, this is what, what Druckmann says, someone in the room will say, we're Naughty Dog. Which is like the wildest statement to utter. We're not like that. It, isn't this like the, like, do you imagine someone is like, you know, someone pitches a hard Fortnite thing and someone goes, we're Epic Mega Games. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's yeah. something really funny to me about like the, uh, the mismeasure between the silliness of the name Naughty Dog and like mm-hmm. the fact that they make the most prestigious products, you know, they they make. Uh, forgive the analogy, but they make, you know, the Martin Scorsese projects, you know, of, right. of uh, you know, in terms of how gamers treat the object. Right. So that's very funny. But also, you know, the, there's this whole that's the design ethos. Right. They're like they go the extra mile that other people don't because they have the budget. They have the connection to Sony as a kind of parent company. Um, and they have this obligation to produce these things that other people won't. They also don't have producers, right? Mm-hmm. Like literally, they don't have the position of producer, and so that has created lots of different questions about uh, what does crunch look like over there? What does it mm-hmm. look like to make a thing? I mean, if you, I've written pretty extensively about The Last of Us, uh, the first game in particular, in lots of different uh, venues, and it's very clear by their own admission that they made a big chunk of that game you know, maybe more than 50% of that game, and a couple years out from it coming out, uh, and even closer in some instances for some mechanics threw stuff out and restarted again. And like the human hour cost of that is elided in a lot of the discussion of it, but it's hard to look at that and not think, holy shit, like the amount of work, the amount of human hours that went into that and the amount of time that they physically had to do it is uh, very short. And so we can kind of do the math there to figure it out. But as you just said, right, that's part of the, that's part of the ethos, the design ethos of the studio is producing particular kind of things in particular kind of ways. And there is a work structure to all of that happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, uh, so we go through, actually, we talk about Bandicoot. We talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. Jack and Daxter. This is Wait a minute. Did you talk about Sonic's ass? I, I, I was getting ready to get there. Oh, I, you were <laughs> we winding can, up yeah. for Sonic's ass. <laughs> we talk about Sonic's ass. Yeah, I posted this on the Range Touch Twitter account uh, where Bodhi <laughs> quotes uh, Naughty Dog co-founder Jason Rubin, who is describing uh, one of the like part of their like thought process and how do they make Crash Bandicoot distinct and different uh, in terms of character platformer. It's not just... Uh, taking techniques from animation and that's how we're going to animate our game or how we're going to design our characters. Uh, in addition to that, uh, looking at the side scrolling platformers, your Sonics and your Mario's, well, what can we do different? Well, crash bandicoot. He goes forward, right? You're, you're behind him. So it's almost like a third person action game. And then, um, Something that's really uh, interesting here, again, about uh, the method that Bodhi is deploying is that you can then, like, 
jump from that, here's a design decision. We're going to put the camera behind the bandicoot. Uh, and then the next series, Jack and Daxter, is a third person uh, like action platformer, right? So we've got, again, like the behind the the character uh, camera kind of deal. Anyway, uh, Jason Rubin, in describing this decision to move the camera behind the platformer character, uh, says, We realized that the sim simplest conceptual way to innovate was to take a 2D world that was flat and simply rotate it. So the gameplay happened without moving it to left and right and rather in and out. This concept we called Sonic's Ass. And yeah, it's like, it. notably... <laughs> Notably, there's an ellipsis here. <laughs> yeah, I really did wonder about the ellipsis of Sonic's ass. It's like, but... how much more did he say about this? <laughs> well, we created the theory of Sonic's ass. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I do wonder about how, like, the linguistic form that gets you to Sonic's ass. But yeah, the idea here is, like, we need to put more, we got to get more polygons on the screen. Mm -hmm. So if we look forward from the perspective of the, of the, the, the avatar, we'll mm -hmm. be able to, like, show off more of what we can do. Then, therefore, let's look at Sonic's ass. Weirdly enough, right, this this is the same concept, the same idea that, uh, I, is it uh, Celia Pierce talks about in communities of play of of, of uh, um, people of one gender playing a different gender? Was that in, in communities of play? I, I, I don't, I'm not sure I'm not making this connection. <laughs> it, it's the, I, I, it is the argument of like, well, if oh, I'm going to look at a character's yes. ass mm -hmm. all day, I'm going to look at a lady. You know yes. what I mean? Right. Yeah. I, I think, think that's that in communities it, of play. Yeah. That's not Pearson necessarily making that argument, but like no, no. noting people who say that. Yeah. It's either in that or it's in the T.L. Taylor book. Um, yeah. Uh, but anyway, point being, it's interesting. <laughs> these are the same argument. Right. right. Naughty Dog is like, we shall show you Sonic's ass. Yes. The it is a it is a technological good. It's it's for the good of the studio to look at Sonic's ass. <laughs> uh, and so it anyway, worked. I mean, it's true. It, it worked, and yeah. it and it did ultimately produce a perspective on the third person thing, right? Like, right. you can look at this, and then you can look at Grand Theft Auto Three, and it's like, okay, well, like you can see the way that not the same studio, obviously, but the way that the camera functions or like this and Tomb Raider, right. You mm -hmm. know, uh, working together in terms of in a third person game, the camera can be anywhere. Mm -hmm. Like, like why does it have to be perfectly centered above your head in this very particular kind of view that you can see in crash bandicoot or, and actually, you know what, to be honest, crash bandicoot is actually quite a bit different, right? Because you can move, uh, kind of laterally to the, to the camera, right. Um, mm -hmm. uh, perpendicular to the camera, uh, and the camera never moves, you know, from its centralized point, which is like centered on the screen, um, as opposed to say Tomb Raider, where it's always centered, always in that very particular angle, and it's always looking wherever your avatar is looking. So, um, and then in Grand Theft Auto Three, when when those two things are decoupled from one another, you can look around, right? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it's in the same position; it's a fixed camera from a a, a particular position in the sky. So, uh, although you can hit that select button. You can look at a, a lot of different ones. You can get in cinematic camera, like many of us did, and you'd run into things at full speed while trying to like uh, recreate scenes from Ronin. You know? Yeah. Hey, guess what? You what? know, you know Ronin that movie? Uh, yeah. With Robert De Niro. Uh huh. It's on 4K now. Oh, that's cool. Just a little public service announcement. Yeah, just letting episode. you know. It's one of the best movies ever made. <laughs> So the only movie where anyone's ever been uh, ambushed with a coffee cup, I'm pretty sure. 
<laughs> until they make the uh uh oh crap what's it called prey yeah when they the- make the prey movie <laughs> yeah but in the prey movie no one's gonna ask about the boat for the boathouse in hereford right <laughs> no like just no one's gonna ask it no one's gonna it's in space <laughs> spoilers <laughs> spoilers uh, prey takes place in space yeah uh, uh, but but yeah, it, it does a lot of this work. I really wish you know I've written a version of this kind of thing before uh, mm-hmm. for my book, and the world is born from zero, mm-hmm. which you can get for twenty one ninety nine. But uh, I've written a version of this because I have a really big chapter on the Last of Us and kind of cinematic technique and how this works. Really wish I'd read this beforehand. I think my book was done by the time that yeah, his dissertation was. was finished, I was thinking so. about that when I was yeah. reading it. I was like, oh, this would have been helpful for Cameron had he not already written the book <laughs> yeah yeah right you know if only you could go back in time and rewrite your book with new and existing knowledge but what i really like that Bodhi does is is where it's in that i'm looking at cinematic technique and really just looking at the object in front of me and then some paratextual stuff mostly looking at um uh a let's play where some of the actors did a let's play and kind of analyzing their own performances and stuff it's really it's very bizarre to watch actually um, but, uh, you know, that, that's kind of the angle that I take, uh, toward that. And, and where I do the history of, of, uh, the filmic version of it, I'm really looking to film studies and particularly the intersection of black studies and film studies to see like, what, what, what is the theorization of the way that the camera works here? But what Bodhi does is this really great, uh, historical analysis of saying, going back all the way to the beginning of Naughty Dog as an apparatus, right? As like this development studio that produces objects out of it. They have always been, from moment one, interested in cinematic presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I think in some ways it's like, it's great to read this because I was like, I was right the whole time. <laughs> yes. And I didn't do any work to prove yes. it. Um, but uh, but it is really interesting to read this kind of thing. And I think, just to be totally honest, I think that Bodhi's strength as a writer is really on display here. Um, I want to read Bodhi's book on, on this kind of thing, just to be honest with you. Uh, the kind of analysis that's happening in chapters like three, four, five, I want to read a book from Bodhi that is about a single studio that takes this method. I... I could kind of take or leave the multidimensional heuristic framework for analyzing player agency, right? I think it's uh-huh. interesting, but it doesn't do a lot for me. However, Bodhi's interweaving of kind of uh, theoretical work and the historical work here is top notch. It's it's great stuff. Uh, and I'll, you know, if there's a chapter I'm going to teach out of this, it's going to be this chapter, right? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm less interested in the agential side of this argument and more interested in. How does a studio see the way that it presents itself to players? Yeah. Um, and what are the valorization modes that are part of that, right? How does it give in value and how does it kind of circulate? I think it's mm-hmm. great. I really loved it. Yeah, I think this is like weirdly enough for this book about agency. I think the coolest thing are these developer histories that just take the long view uh, in the cases where they can. The last one is a little bit different and we'll talk about yeah. that. But um. Just like, how can you see a uh, studio's uh, kind of design process develop in time and sort of what priorities change or which ones always stay kind of center stage? Uh, and it, it's just it's fascinating. I, I was actually it was in this chapter I was reading it and I was like, why haven't I read anything like this before? <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, because it's mostly in the enthusiast space. Exactly. You know, there, right. There's lots of writing like this, but it is almost entirely like in people who are still doing blogs and there's some video essays that kind of do this work, right? I mean, video mm-hmm. essays still remain overwhelmingly either argument based, 
you know, and I'm thinking of like Jacob Geller's work, right? Like, mm-hmm. here's an interesting perspective on the world. Let me show you how I got to that perspective. Uh, or someone like Noah Caldwell Gervais, right? Which is like aesthetic analysis. Yeah. Um, here's seven hours of me doing the thing um, and kind of summarizing my thoughts on it. Uh, but I mean, there's lots of this really cool historical work. It is just overwhelmingly like still in the blog space. Yeah, I guess actually what I thought specifically was not why haven't I read anything like this before? Because I recognized exactly what you just said is like I've seen this in like enthusiast space and in sort of, um, you know, like basically what I thought was why haven't I seen another academic take up this style of analysis? Because it's yeah. it seems like so uh, I mean, academics, I guess, are actually in a good position to do this kind of stuff, to just like dig into the research and be like, hey, here's how Naughty Dog's uh, ethos developed over the past 25, 30 years. Um, and then it concludes, Bodhi concludes uh, after this run through of Uncharted uh, with a deep dive uh, on Uncharted 4 specifically uh, and kind of the context in which it is produced and then uh, the ways that it is different from the games that have preceded it, um, but also, you know, the ways in which it is uh, uh, similar uh, and ultimately, right, uh, uh, applies the heuristic of uh, the various types of agency and in what comes out. Well, it turns out that um, spatially uh, uncharted games, even though they have these famously, you know, huge lush environments, uh don't have a lot of like explorative agency in the sense that your path through any given map is pretty well designed, right? Like the, uh, and part of the whole like cinematic apparatus of Naughty Dog is making that process so smooth that you don't feel like you need to go explore, that you're just like, you are, you are on the roller coaster, except the roller coaster is your character's feet and the walls that you're climbing and whatever. Um, uh, yeah, so exploration is limited and in, in structured, uh, although Uncharted 4 introduces what these developers call the wide linear levels that have some, like, sort of multi-path stuff in the, be- like, you know, begin in the same place and end in the same place, but in the space in between, you can actually, you know, take multiple vehicles through a map or whatever. Um, uh, the lavish audiovisual detail is also about kind of representation and like the way that representation, like there's more of an emphasis in representational space in Naughty Dog versus ludic space, right? That's the way that this works in the heuristic. Uh, the, uh, quick time events introduce, uh, temporal pressure. Um, and there is no configuration or construction to speak of ex- aside from like, you know, what guns is Nathan Drake holding at any given point in time? Uh, and then narratively also uh, making cutscenes blend into gameplay in a way that is supposed to feel seamless. Um, it, it gives you a lot of like narrative agency in that uh, ultimately, you know, Ideally, you feel satisfied. You're like, I am playing the game and I am seeing these characters do their thing and seeing what happens in the story. And like, that's good enough. Right. I'm not making choices about what Nathan Drake does because I am interested in seeing what this narrative about Nathan Drake is saying, Um, meaning that there is little dramatic agency. The player is not making choices uh, for the most part. Let's talk about the, uh, the the next one. Yeah, so the next chapter is a compelling story with choices that matter, uh, and this is Bioware's Mass Effect series. Uh, you know, contrasted to Naughty Dog, where uh, there's a lot of continuity and design philosophy, the, the basic argument that Bodhi makes here is that 
BioWare had a very clear design philosophy that also shifted dramatically through the course of the Mass Effect trilogy, uh, up through Mass Effect Andromeda, uh, and this had some, well, I mean, you know, not great consequences for the reception of the games, um, but it means that the games are very interested, interesting to talk about, uh, like, as a sequence, uh, because of the way you can track uh, Bioware's, like, traditional, quote-unquote, emphasis on uh, kind of role-playing, uh, role-playing narrative, character choice, uh, things like that, and sort of the slow emergence and centralization of real-time combat, which is not new, again, to these series, because uh, Bodhi works through, hey, uh, uh, Bioware made Murder Death, or MDK2, rather, uh, which is a, a shooter game, right? It, it wasn't like a one-off that there was uh, combat in a Bioware game of, of this type. And then like uh, Knights of the Old Republic uh, shifts the like Baldur's Gate uh, turn-based D&D style combat into something that's slightly more real-time. Uh, and then by the time we get to uh, Mass Effect, we have, you know, shooty-shooty, uh, roll, explosion, whatever. Uh, and then we get Mass Effect Andromeda, which is a game that no one talks about anymore. I have not heard a single thing about it in years because nobody seemed to like it. And then uh, Bodhi digs into... Uh, actually, you know, all the technical issues that we heard about uh, with that game aside, why was this game ultimately so badly received? Why was it so unsatisfying uh, for people? Uh, and the way that she pins this down ultimately is she says that um, uh, the the story just wasn't there that like uh there was there was something like a hundred or a hundred and fifty hours of content in this game yeah which so is, she does like a quick summary of like hours of content in comparable games at the same time and it's just like it's more than anyone else for some reason yes it's it's wild and she compares it to like the the uh, scanning the Keeper's quest in the first Mass Effect game. Uh, so, because uh, they're both like, so it's a, she talks about the side quests, basically. Uh, in the first Mass Effect game, you get to this area called the Citadel, if for some reason you haven't played Mass Effect. Um, and there are, the Citadel is like a big space station where a whole bunch of alien races kind of cohabitate, and it's kind of like the government center for the big uh, uh, space union. Um and uh, the there are like little. Oh uh, gosh, I'm down here. I got I got a work stoppage <laughs> from the space union. They won't let us work on the space station no more. I didn't mean oh, that type. We of can union. only do. We can only hit it with a space hammer three times a day. <laughs> one man, one vote. Uh, so the the keepers are like little aliens that live on uh, the space station. Uh, and they were there when, notably, like, the space station was not built by anyone who is currently on it. It was discovered. And so these keepers, these other aliens, were already there. And they're not hostile or anything. They just seem to, like, take care of the space station. And everyone's just kind of let them do their thing. Uh, and you encounter uh, two scientists who are debating about whether or not the keepers basically should be investigated more. Uh, and they give you what is essentially the same side quest, which is like go through all of the areas of the Citadel and like scan all of the keepers, like find every keeper in every location and like, you know, hit your button next to them and they get added. And when you complete it, fantastic, wonderful. Uh, but as she points out, uh, 
the design of this quest, even though you function, you do literally the same thing, you can do it with one guy or the other. And both of these guys have sort of differing opinions. One person is sort of like very suspicious of the keepers uh, and one person is like more protective of them. Uh, and so within doing the same quest, you get kind of a narrative decision about, well, like who, what does my character, like kind of where do they fall on this? What does my shepherd think about this? And so who do they go with when they want to do this, if they do it, right? Um, versus... Uh, so, like the example from Mass Effect Andromeda, which is like you talk to a person. This was so weird. She uh, mentions that like you you can get a like a quest from a bartender who tells you to go get like beer ingredients. Like space beer. I don't know. Uh, space beer. Uh, you but need, I need it for the space <laughs> union. They come and then they drink me out every day. <laughs> I need it for the space union workers. Uh, so you, you like talk to this character and the character's like, hello, I am person with occupation. I need a resource. Please go to place with resource and get it for me. Uh, and then you go and you get it and you bring it back. And they're like, thank you so much. Here's your reward and your experience. And then they like disappear from the game. And so uh, that's kind of her, her key contrast with like here, you know, the both of these in terms of um, like design, you're not doing much that's different, right? It's all like mm -hmm. a, a, an NPC tells you to go to a location and do a thing and then report back to them. Uh, but on the one hand, narratively scanning the keepers feels like it's got a lot of dramatic agency. You're making choices about who your character is, why they're doing it, who are they siding with. Um, and even if that stuff doesn't manifest specifically in the game, it feels meaningful to the player, right? And this is really what it comes down to is uh, how much weight does the player end up feeling like they have in terms of the decisions that they're making versus like, oh, I got your like space hops or whatever. And then I got my experience points and then you disappeared. And like, that was it. Yeah, it's a lot of MMO design, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and weirdly enough, you know, kind of, kind of a conversation that comes up in the book, but kind of not, is that what seems to have happened, right, is that they identified kind of design pillars uh, that were important for Mass Effect games, and then they supported those pillars with things from a different genre of game, essentially, right? And so right, there's this like, misalignment. Right. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, oh, no. That was part of the big thing, is that they went to, yeah. is it's the Frostbite engine, right? Right. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that she points out is that they were designing this game in an engine that wasn't actually, you know, it was not designed for a dialogue story, dialogue heavy, story intensive role playing game with a whole bunch of choices. Uh, it was a sort of free form exploring uh, uh, sort of MMO ish style uh, engine that everything was having to be like anything that uh, uh, we might think of as more traditionally narrative or Bioware was having to be uh, stapled into a system that wasn't necessarily meant to support it. And so ultimately it becomes easier to design your MMO style quests. Yeah. I actually think frostbite was developed for battlefield specifically. Oh, okay. It's, so it's yeah, dice's engine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I think one of the major things that came out of the reportage there that like, not only was it hard to do, but it like couldn't, it didn't know, Frostbite did not even have like third person camera capabilities. <laughs> so like, you know, and wasn't really designed around that. And it's like world rendering was not designed around that either. So uh, there's a lot of stuff going on here. And then at the end, we get this kind of perfunctory and here's how the heuristic applies to this. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, 
which, uh, yeah, I'll save my broad thoughts on it. But I've, I thought this was an interesting chapter, too. Less interesting, I mean, what's interesting to me about both of these, I guess, is that I've written extensively about Naughty Dog, so I know a lot of that stuff, and I've, I've played a lot of, and so in playing a lot of and doing shows about uh, Bioware, I know a lot about Bioware, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the Baldur's Gate stuff that's in the background there is actually maybe more indicative of the rest of the... I, I, I would quibble on how far away from Baldur's Gate Mass Effect is, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because the power usage actually turns it into pause and play, right? The, mm-hmm. the, yeah. That it, it's kind of a trick to think that it's all real time um, because it does other stuff. And KOTOR has a pause. I was just playing KOTOR the other day. It has a straight up pause button. Right. You have to hit the little, it's either the little black button or the little white button on your controller. I now you might be that. saying, they don't have that anymore. How do you do that? <laughs> Well, the emulator has a way of figuring it out on the on the Xbox Series X. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so we, you know we've got this chapter, and then we get the final chapter, which I don't have any familiarity with. I, I've never played this game. It's on Astroneer. I was going to ask you, have you even heard of this game? Because I had never heard of it. I, I've seen like the little you know uh, doodle on Steam or whatever, right? But beyond mm-hmm. that, no. Yeah. So this one is really uh, a, a different chapter because Astroneer is a big uh survival crafting game of the type that is made these days the chapter is called by the way the world is your play-doh system era softworks and astroneer uh and it's michael's ga- hated game <laughs> yeah your, I do, your sworn enemy game i do not like survival crafting games that's true uh so uh the the Things that are different here, right? Obviously, new genre, mm. uh, system, or yeah, survival crafting. That's kind of like a whole new thing. Uh, uh, but then, System Era specifically is an uh, a fledgling indie studio, which you can, if you rem- if you listen to our last episode, uh, you know that indie can mean a lot of things. In this case, uh, it's a situation where uh, a pe- a bunch of people who had worked for like mainline studios left that environment and came together to. Uh, make a game that was more in line with the games that they wanted to make. Uh, and it is a uh, weirdly... When did when did Among Us come out? Because these little dudes look a lot like Among Uses. Uh, 2020, right? 2019? Uh, I, was, I know Among Us exploded over the pandemic, but I think it had been out for a while before then. Yeah, 2018, 2018 maybe. 2018. 20, 2018, yeah. Um, so Among you're like a... You're, you're like little, little space dudes... Uh, on a cartoonish planet, and it then and it's survival crafting, right? You uh, are in an environment, you dig through some stuff, you find resources, you use those resources to make things, you can build uh, more and more things, you can go to other planets, find more resources, find other people to play with, it can be multiplayer or whatever. Uh, very much, like, looks a little bit like Among Us, uh, but uh, in, in broad terms, very much kind of like No Man's Sky in... in mm-hmm vibe mm-hmm. um yeah this and Val- valheim have a lot of kind of stuff in common it looks like to me mm-hmm. uh and so what the, instead of doing like the design ethos of like here's all the stuff that the studio has done because this is the only game that the studio has made uh is more about like putting them in the context of their time uh within the context of you know what what is popular or like what are people interested in and what do these people want to make and so we talk a bit about like the the huge influence of minecraft and the explosion of this genre of game um and then weirdly enough this is the chapter that probably digs the deepest into like the old school game studies where we get like Quizinga and kawa 
uh, because this distinction between Ludus and Paideia ends up being really important for talking about, like, what are the design goals of Astroneer, uh, where it's, you know, uh, uh, Ludus and Paideia, if you don't remember, uh, or haven't listened to that episode, Ludus is uh, Calois' term for structured play versus Paideia, which is kind of like unstructured play. Uh, think of Paideia as being like kids playing pretend where maybe they don't have props or anything and like anything can happen. You know, like I'm a princess now. Oh, uh, now I'm a fairy. Now I'm a bear, whatever. Uh, so, uh, that sort of, like, free-form exploratory, not a lot of, uh, hard, like, must-hit-these-goals kinds of things, so the, the contrast between, uh, children's play and something like, you know, cricket or soccer, where it's like, here's the arena, here's how you can move, here's, like, how you can hit the ball and score points and that sort of thing. Uh, so, uh, the designers of Astroneer are interested in, uh, presenting what they're like inducing really, or like giving places for uh, playfulness. That's kind of their term, uh, which Bodhi uh, aligns with Paideia. This idea that, uh, you know, the system is built such that I can't, like we get uh, extensive lists of how many resources are in this game uh, and sort of the types of things that they can be put together to produce. Uh, but uh, for many of the, or like for the, from the designer's perspective, the idea here is building a sandbox where you can, here, here are all these things that you can do, but we're not going to mandate that you do many of them beyond, you know, like your kind of tutorial stuff. Um, and I mean, that's kind of it, right? And then the, the, the ending is sort of like walking through what does a game like this when run through the multidimensional heuristic, what does it look like? Well, it turns out that there's a lot of configurative agency uh, through crafting, uh, a lot of exploratory agency through resource collection, uh, not a lot of narrative agency because there's not really a story. There's like maybe there's one, maybe two cutscenes in the entire game and it's like beginning and ending. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, high potential for dramatic agency. Uh, saying that, uh, you know, the, the point of this game is for people to kind of like end up in a space together uh, and for funny things to happen for you and your friends to experience and talk about later and, and tell people about. Did it make you want to play it? Absolutely not, because I don't like this type of game. <laughs> you see, uh, you see Don't Starve mm -hmm. and you say, I'm gonna. Yep. <laughs> you say, you see, uh, no Man's Sky, and you say, that's right. I mean, I've talked about, I think I've talked about maybe No Man's Sky either on this show or maybe Too Much Future, which I said some positive things about when I started playing. And mm -hmm. I still, like, I think No Man's Sky looks really cool, and I think there's lots of cool stuff in that game, but what you need to know is that I played that game right up until the moment when uh, it introduced, uh, like, the sort of, like, social hub uh, mm -hmm. where there were, like, other players running around, like, talking to merchants and stuff. Mm -hmm. And the second that happened, I was like, I'm done. This is the end of the game for me. Wow. <laughs> you you see Rust, and you go, that's right. <laughs> that's it, yep. <laughs> I hope that's what happens with all these games. Ex that exactly. they rust. Wow. Uh, yeah, I thought this was really interesting, especially like this chapter, the um, because it's a bunch of AAA devs. So then therefore they're bringing their values with them. I thought that was pretty interesting in terms of of like the history part of the thing. But by, by its very nature, they just kind of can't do the same thing. Um, and then there's a conclusion, which is, uh, you know, 
I'm I've I've made my uh, my point clear. Mm-hmm. Abolish conclusions. We don't need them. <laughs> I mean, it's true, right? Like it's uh, basically Bodhi says, like, so here's what I told you in case you in case you missed it while you're reading the book. <laughs> uh, quoting from page uh, maybe two hundred six or two hundred nine here, circumstances circumstances of production such as technology used in management production and distribution impact how player action is thought to be afforded and is eventually afforded. Mm. You know, so, so that's good. I like that. Like when we think about agency or whatever, we need to think about how are these things designed? How are they produced? What does agency mean in their particular context? Uh, and then she gestures at here are some obvious things that I didn't talk about that might be interesting if someone else wanted to to work with them in this framework. So, uh, you know, looking more closely at actual co-op play or uh, community management and live service games. Uh, yeah, seems good. I, I mean, I do think that, you know, in the conclusion, uh, it makes it very clear this is, like, design-oriented. And like I said at the beginning, I think this is mostly helpful for, in terms of, like, if you are someone who finds these heuristics interesting, they're probably more helpful for designers than they are for critics. Um, if only because I just don't find it that often in my scholarship where I'm having to be, like, when you play Assassin's Creed, you're experiencing blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like this form of this specific form of agential whatever, right? Um, uh, like I, it just I don't know what it opens up for me uh, as a thing. But if I were doing the kind of thing that she's doing here, which is like the design history of the studio, or if I were talking about maybe like genre constraints or something like that, if I were thinking a little bit more structurally about like clusters of games, this is probably be really really helpful for drawing lines around those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I think it's a cool book. I think it's a good first book for sure. Um, and, uh, it, uh, makes me really excited. I mean, you know, selfishly, I just, I want a whole book of one of these, uh, you know, like studio histories, like these critical studio histories. Mm-hmm. I think it's good. I think they're great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there we have it. That's the step one in the summer of agency. That's it. Uh, I don't remember what book we're doing next, but you can check the uh, <laughs> twitter.com slash range touch. <laughs> you can check to see which one we're doing uh, because I mean, we're basically going to be doing, I think four books on agency and I'll have it in front of me. And I'm not, I'm not going to look. It's, can I, can I tell you? Uh, yeah, sure. So actually next month for July, we'll be reading CT Nguyen's uh, games agency as art. Yeah, we're going to do it. And, I, you know, I've previewed this book a little bit. When it came out, I looked at it and I thought, oh, you know what? We're going to do an episode on this at some point. I don't really write on agency per se, so I don't need to dive into this immediately. So I, I think my it was actually when this time. book came out that you first pitched the Summer of Agency to me. I think I did, yeah. Even yeah. before the Summer of Classics, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, but, uh, but I think it's going to be a pretty different kind of book. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, uh, Nguyen's a... a, a uh, philosopher, I couldn't come up with the word philosopher there. Uh, and uh, <laughs> he's and so a lover they, of knowledge, <laughs> right? Right. You know, ah, uh, uh, Sophia, I can't remember, but <laughs> ancient Greek stuff. But uh, uh, Nguyen's a philosopher, and so he's going to have like a very different approach to some of this. And you know, I got to put my cards on the table, as people probably well know at this point if you've listened to any of these episodes, right? Like in in the uh, eternal war between. Uh, the materialist social analysis of game developer history and philosophers doing philosophy. 
I, I, I know which side I'm on, right? Like, uh, which is really funny because my background is much closer to the philosophy side, right? In terms mm-hmm. of my own interests, the way that I do work and things like that. Um, but uh, uh, so we'll see how it goes. I haven't read the whole book um, and I'm really curious about uh, about where it fits into kind of questions of, agent, of agency. Um, we'll shout out some stuff on the show too, but uh, if you want a little preview of it, there is an Ezra Klein interview with C.T. Nguyen um, from a few years ago, I guess 2022. So last year, um, that kind of works through the stuff of the book. So if you want a little bit of a preview of that, you can check that out. That's at the New York times website. You can just Google it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so we'll be back uh, next month with that. And then, uh, some other books after that. Do we want to just go through the whole thing really quick? Uh, yeah, sure. Let's, let's, why not? So uh, I think we did this with, uh, classics as well. So why not? Uh, after that, then in August, we will be doing You've Been Played by Han. Uh, mm-hmm. And then in September, Narrative as Virtual Reality by Ryan. Yep. Uh, so uh, these kind of different perspectives on agency uh, with the Ryan book kind of capping it off as both a classic in the field. I mean, it's kind of a, a you know big need to read it kind of book, I think, that neither you nor I ever visited in a long time. Um, I don't think I've read that book in 10 years, literally, at mm. this point. Um, but, uh, so, so that, but, but that also kind of is definitive for the field in thinking about some of the questions of uh, agential action, right? Like what are the parameters in video games under which one can be thought of as doing stuff? And the Bodhi book obviously tags into some of that, but it's not exhaustive of it. And maybe we can go to a slightly more kind of, um, abstract narratology angle to figure that out. Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Well, we'll be back uh, at the end of next month with uh, the games agency as art. Uh, I don't even remember what our sign off is now. Oh, I remember. (laughs) Uh, The social is predicated on its exclusions. (laughs) 